We are continuing this morning in our summer sermon series on prophecy. We've entitled the whole series, Things to Come, Seven Events, Prophetic Events that Wait Fulfillment. We are working our way through the first of those events, the rapture of the church. I feel like I'm running a 26-mile marathon in the beach sand. We're... uh, but uh, we are making progress, just not perhaps as quickly as, as um, we might hope. But we are making progress through this. And I've been thinking a lot about how to handle this series this summer. And um, I think what I'm going to do is we're going to go through these seven events. And I try to go through them slowly enough so that they're coherent. And then I want to go back after that and go to some passages of Scripture that are really significant and work our way specifically through each of those passages. So I'm going to kind of lay the groundwork here over the next few months for the seven events, what they are, how they tie together, and then we'll go back and we'll work our way through some of those passages, in particular like Matthew 24 and 25 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and and the book of Revelation. We'll have to move quickly through uh, that and... uh, but anyway, that's, that's the plan of how, how we're going to do this. And I'm praying desperately that the Lord returns uh, be, before I finish and uh, rescues me from, uh, from making any serious errors here. The, um, the doctrine of the rapture of the church, that is the snatching away of the church of Jesus Christ, before the tribulation, before that seven-year period of, of a judgment that is poured out by God upon His creation, upon this earth, through a series of seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, as outlined in the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 6 and running all the way through chapter 19, before that awful judgment comes, we are persuaded by the weight of evidence of the Scriptures that, God, that Christ will return and will snatch away, will rapture, will catch up His church to be with Him. And thus they will escape that awful time of wrath. And they will there remain with Him in heaven for seven years during that time of tribulation on the earth to return with Him at the end of that time in what is more formally called His second coming, to take up residency with Him upon this earth in the great 1,000-year kingdom of Christ known as the Millennium. I hope as we work through this study together this summer that by the time we're finished, you will be able to identify in your mind the major passages of Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that speak to this, these issues and you will be able to, to explain how that passage um, supports the, your understanding of the future end time events. So what I'm driving for this summer is not just what would happen, that you will know what is going to happen, but why we believe it is going to happen. So it's a very ambitious agenda. It's not just what, it's why. We have a doctrinal statement that lays all of this out. Those of you that are members, you have affirmed that doctrinal statement. So in some sense, I can presuppose the what for you, that as you said, you do believe these things are going to happen. 
But I know for a fact that the why is a little bit murky in many people's minds. I uh, had lunch yesterday with uh, someone and we were talking about that. And, and uh, he asked me a question about uh, the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15. And was that the uh, trumpet from uh, the book of Revelation? And I said, no, I don't think so. And uh, when I get there, I'll explain to you why I don't think so. And I said, but... Um, for me, this series this summer is an opportunity to finally deal with all the little pieces of the puzzle that I have through the years set off to the side that I wasn't quite sure how they fit in, and I've just set them off. And so my personal challenge this summer as I go through this is to try to account for all the pieces in my own mind. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's been rich, it's been fruitful for me to go back through all of this again, and hopefully when I'm done, I can account for all the pieces. I pray the Lord would give such clarity. Ten reasons. Ten reasons why we believe in and teach a pre-tribulational rapture. That is, a pre-before-tribulation, seven years of judgment, rapture, snatching away, catching away of the church of Jesus Christ. Ten reasons from the Scriptures. And as I said, every, none of these reasons is a silver bullet. It is not like, wow, just show me that one passage and the whole issue is settled for me. It's not done that way. This, uh, uh, this aspect of biblical theology and perhaps all biblical theology is really an accumulation of, of uh, information from many passages and it is brought together. And so these ten reasons, no single one of which is probably a conclusive proof that would just close the door on everybody else, because if it did, then there would be no disagreements. But I believe that the weight of evidence, all ten weighed together, provide the best answer to this question. And that's the basis under which we go. So, reviewing for you, some of you not able to be here last week, you can get a fuller explanation if you... Go online to the website and look at, download the sermon from last week or get a CD, whatever you want to do. But just reviewing here, these reasons, beginning with number one, the first reason why we believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture is because it preserves the doctrine of imminence. It preserves the doctrine of imminence. An imminent event is an event that is close at hand in the sense that it can occur at any time. It can overtake you at any moment. It's hanging over you. Other things may occur first before an imminent event occurs, but nothing must occur first. And that's the difference. An event is imminent if it could overtake you at any moment. Many things may happen in your life. Um, or certainly in the history of the church, okay? But there's nothing necessary that must happen before this event. Otherwise, the understanding of imminency is destroyed. Last time we looked at a number of passages. I'll review just a couple of them for you to remind you that this was indeed the teaching of the New Testament. The apostles believed that the return of Christ for His church was an imminent event. They wrote all the time, including themselves, in the idea that Christ would return and they expected his return while they were living. For example, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, Let your forbidding, a forbearing spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. Or James chapter 5, verses 7 and 9, he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. 
or one of my favorites, Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, closing out the revelation of the New Testament as a whole. John writes, behold, uh, he's writing the words of Jesus here. Behold, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So this idea that the return of Christ for his church was an event that is hanging over his church in a good sense is a very much the understanding of the New Testament apostles. If any event, any prophetic event had to occur before this, then we could not say it was an imminent event. All right. So that means that if any or all of this tribulation period, this seven years of judgment has to occur before Christ comes for his church, then in no meaningful sense can you say, at least in my opinion, that it is an imminent event. Okay, so it's the doctrine of eminence is our first reason. Secondly. Secondly, it provides the pre-tribulational rapture provides comfort to the church, comfort to the church. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 through 18, very significant passage on the rapture. Paul ends there. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. That is the, the return of Christ for his church in which the dead will be raised and those that are living will be transformed and given glorified bodies suited to be with Christ is a source of comfort for the church. Now, the comfort here is not just in a general resurrection idea, not just in a, a general idea of resurrection from the dead, because that idea is already known. It is already familiar to the people of God and and had been Daniel chapter 12, verses one and two speak of the resurrection Jesus, when he he uh, comes to the uh, to the tomb of Lazarus, you'll remember back in John 11 and he speaks to Martha and beginning in verse 23, he says to her, your brother shall rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So there is already a belief among the people of God in a general resurrection to occur at the last day. What was unknown to them and what Paul provides as additional revelation in First Thessalonians chapter four is that this resurrection it will be in conjunction with the rapture of the church, at least for the believers in the church, and will snatch them away before the storm. That's the source of comfort. That's the source of comfort. Otherwise, otherwise, there is no reason to mourn for those that are already dead because they're going to experience the general resurrection anyway, and they're going to escape the tribulation storm. And so they're better off than those that are living. So the comfort comes in the fact that both dead and living will meet Christ in the air and will avoid tribulation. Third reason. Third reason. This is all review. Christians are not destined for wrath. Christians are not destined for wrath. We noted last time the wrath of God is his absolutely settled and passionate anger against sin and rebellion among his creatures. God is holding back his wrath. The Bible teaches us it is accumulating, as it were, and it is going to pour forth someday upon all of the rebellion that has accumulated through the years, through the ages. This wrath of God is most perfectly and most completely poured out in a place called the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 20, or in a vernacular that you and I are used to, hell. 
hell. But God's wrath is not just reserved for that final judgment. There is a series of judgments or wrath of God that begins to pour out, according to Revelation, beginning in chapter 6, upon this earth in a series of, what, as I said, seals and trumpets and bowls that is an escalating wrath and is a, it is a foretaste, it is a down payment, it is a glimpse of the future great wrath of God that comes in a place called hell. It is known, this, this wrath of the tribulation period is known throughout the Scriptures as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, and we'll come to that term later this summer and spend a lot more time talking about it. So when Paul says we are not destined to wrath, we need to understand the wrath that he's talking about. And uh, boy, it's probably time to open your Bibles here uh, at some point. So how about 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and, uh, and verse 10? And I think in your pew Bible, I forgot to write this one down. I think it's page like probably 1182, something like that. First Thessalonians chapter 1. This is all still review, although I didn't say this last week. So this is uh, additional information as part of the review. How's that? It's actually in response to an email question that came in. So First um, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says... That the, um, that the Thessalonians, who are pagans, have turned to God from idols, the end of verse 9, to serve the living and true God, and here it is, and to wait for His Son from heaven, who delivers us from the wrath to come. To wait for His Son from heaven, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul is tying together here the fact that a son, the Son, Christ Himself, is returning from heaven, and that is tied to the, to the idea of being delivered from the wrath to come. Those two concepts are being put together in the same verse. That is, a, that is a, an important observation in interpreting what he, what he means when he's talking about wrath in this book. It is not the wrath of the lake of fire. It is not the wrath of hell that that Paul is talking about. Because in no really meaningful sense does the second coming of Christ, does the return of Christ, deliver people from hell. The wrath he is talking about here is the, the day of the Lord wrath, the wrath of the tribulation period. That is the wrath that the return of Christ delivers us from. Therefore, when we go over to chapter 5 and verse 9, Where Paul says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for attaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath he is talking about there, I am persuaded, is still the same wrath. That is, that it is the day of the Lord wrath and that the the deliverance, the, the fact that we're not destined for it, tells me that we that God is not intended for his church to go through that kind of wrath. The salvation spoken of there in verse 9 is the deliverance, the deliverance via the rapture. Okay? So, that's number three. Number four. This is new stuff. Okay? Number four. New stuff. We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because, number four, because of distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. Because of distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. That is, there are, there are certain similarities between the second coming of Christ. And let me define that. I, I need to define that term. 
The second coming of Christ is when He comes to this earth in judgment and then for the establishment of His thousand-year glorious kingdom known as the millennium. That is the second coming of Christ. There are similarities between that return to earth and His return for the rapture. That is, His return to take the church with Him back to heaven. There are definite similarities to be sure, but there are also significant differences because of the differences. And I'll show them to you in a minute because of the differences. Therefore, we do not believe that the return for his church and the return in judgment to establish his kingdom are the same event or occur at the same time. Because of the differences, we believe there is a return for his church in which he takes them back to heaven. There is a later return in which he comes and establishes his kingdom. And they are two different events. Okay, that's the big idea. Matthew, chapter 24, verse page 985. Matthew, chapter 24 and 25 is a great prophetic passage in the scriptures. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse, it occurs on the, on the Mount of Olives. And in this passage, this section, this discourse, Jesus, in chapter 24, answers three questions that his disciples have raised. He answers three questions that they have raised in response to his statement at the end of chapter 23 that the temple is going to be destroyed. He says at the end that, uh, that, that basically the temple is going to be destroyed. Verse 38, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And then chapter 24, verse 1, they go out of the temple. They're going away. His disciples come up to point out the temple buildings. And he answers and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. That is, the temple is going to be destroyed. This is not new news. The, the disciples knew the temple would be destroyed. And the reason they knew it was because it had been predicted by the prophet Daniel many, many, many uh, years before that, centuries before that, in chapter 9, verse 26. I'm not going to turn you there now. We'll, we'll get there eventually, okay? But Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, clearly predicts the destruction of the temple. And so the believing disciples who are all Jews know the temple is going to be destroyed. So that is not a source of question for them. The question for them has to do with when. Not what, but when. Verse 3, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, there is some difference of opinion here among Bible teachers, whether there are two questions here or three. I think there are three, three questions that are being asked. First question, when will these things be? That is, when will the temple be destroyed? Second question, what will be the sign of your coming? How will we know? Third question, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Literally, or, or, or said another way, what will be the sign of the beginning of your great kingdom? The end of the age was marked by all the prophets, marked by the, the advent of the great Davidic kingdom, the great millennial kingdom, the great kingdom of God here on earth. So they're asking him three questions. 
When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your return? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus answers the first question, what will be or when will the temple be destroyed? Not here in Matthew 24, but he answers it over in Luke chapter 21. So I got to turn you turn you there. I told you last week when we're done, you're going to know your way through the Bible here. Luke 21 page 1051 Luke 21 verses 20 to 24 Luke records a more abbreviated uh, portion of Jesus's Olivet discourse Jesus's answer to these questions and Luke records the answer to the first question Matthew does not Matthew focuses on the second two questions so Luke answers pardon me the first question when will the temple be destroyed beginning in verse 20 But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of the city depart. And let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. Jesus is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 by the Roman army under the general Titus. That is the event in which the fulfillment of the prophecy back in Matthew or uh, yeah, Matthew 24, when Jesus says not one stone will be left upon another. When Rome finally broke into the city of Jerusalem, the Jewish zealots had retreated to the Temple Mount. They were fighting to the last man. And in the process of Rome breaking through, a fire broke out. The temple was consumed in the fire. And in the burning of the temple, all of the gold leaf that was abundant throughout that beautiful temple, was melted and and dripped down into the cracks of the stones, and the Roman army dismantled the place stone by stone in order to recover the gold. Not one stone left on another. In fact, all that is left was the retaining wall for the Temple Mount platform, which is the place of most holy, uh, sacred place to Israel today in Jerusalem, the Wailing Wall is nothing but a retaining wall for the Temple Mount. Okay, So the answer to that first question, tell us when these things will be, Matthew 24, Luke provides the answer, AD 70. AD 70 in the destruction of the Temple. The remaining two questions make up the balance of chapters 24 and really leading into 25 and deal with the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is coming in judgment and establishment of His great kingdom. As I said before, there's similarity between this event and the event of his return for his church, but there are also significant differences. So I want to highlight some of those differences for you. And the differences prove that they cannot be the same event. They prove they cannot be the same event. That is that the rapture of the church cannot be the same event as the second coming. All right, here's three of them for you very simply. Now keep a thumb in, uh, or a finger or pencil or whatever in Matthew 24 and go back to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to have to kind of look back and forth a little here. 
First Thessalonians chapter four, you'll notice that when Christ returns. Verse 17, it says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That is that the the return to take the church is a meeting that occurs in the air. And we are we meet Christ there in the air. And um, you can just mark this in your margin. We'll look at it again in a later week. But this correlates with John chapter 14, verse three, where Jesus says that I go to prepare a place from you and I will return and take you to myself that where I am there, you may be always. He comes to take his church to be with him. They meet him in the air. That is different than Matthew chapter 25 or. Um, yeah, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32 where Christ returns to reign and dwell on earth. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31, 32. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats. The first, the return of Christ and the rapture of the church, the church joins him in the air and they are with him always. The second coming, Christ returns to the earth, establishes his kingdom. He reigns and he rules, says here in verse 31, on his glorious throne. And it begins with a series of judgments. Okay, so there's a significant difference there. Beyond that, at the rapture, back to first Thessalonians chapter four. At the rapture. Christ gathers his own, verse 17, the dead in Christ. Do you see that? That expression, in Christ, is used by the Apostle Paul in a number of places. It speaks about those who have been by faith united to Jesus Christ. They are his body, they are the church, and they are a unique people for all time and ages. So they are the dead in Christ. That is different than at the second coming, or in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, it says he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the others. The difference is that Christ comes and gathers his own in first Thess four. The angels come and gather at the end of the age. So two different people are doing the gathering. Do you understand that? Christ comes for his own, first that's for the rapture. The angels come and gather at the second coming. Two different gatherers. Can't be the same event. Third, at the rapture, the believers depart the earth. Right? We will join him in the clouds, it says, and thus we will meet him in the clouds, verse 17. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. If all the believers, now listen carefully here, if all the believers on earth are gathered to Christ at that moment in time, that leaves how many believers on the earth? This is a simple math question, and the answer is zero. Okay, that's right. It leaves zero. So at that moment in time, there are no unbelievers left on earth. Or, said it the other way. There are no believers left on earth. Thank you. Thanks for that. There are no believers left on earth 
All the believers have been taken away. All that is left is unbelievers. Yes? Good. All right. Now, at the second coming, it's a different event. Go back to Matthew 24. It's a different event because at the second coming, the unbelievers are taken away and only the believers are left. Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 41 for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days, which were before the, thr- the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. All right. Now, when the flood came and took them all away, it took them all away in judgment. All right. So this is a reference to the return and the taking away in judgment. Verse 40, then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So there is a taking away into judgment. Over chapter 25, verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41 He will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So we've got two different events going. At one event, all the believers are taken out and are with Christ. There's nothing but unbelievers left on the earth. The other event, which occurs seven years later, is a taking away, a little more than seven years, is a taking away of all of the unbelievers and all that is left is the believers. That's probably as clear as mud, but... Okay? So two different events because there's two different catching away, two different taking aways that's occurring here. Maybe I can illustrate this the way Jesus illustrated it in Matthew chapter 13. So I'll just turn to the left to Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus told a couple of parables. Matthew chapter 13. He tells a parable of the wheat and the tares. Parable of the wheat and the tares. It says in verse 30, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Down to verse 40. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. That is, that the wicked are gathered up as tares are gathered and bundled and burned. They are gathered and they are taken out of his kingdom. The unbelievers removed. Believers remain. Pre-tribulational rapture. Believers removed unbelievers remain. He illustrates it again in the parable of the dragnet, Matthew chapter 13, verse 48. Two parables to illustrate the same event tell us this is important. Okay, this is important. Verse 48 or 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. When it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. They sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. So there is a snatching of the wicked from among the righteous. There are similarities between the second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom 
and his return in, uh, in to take the church and the rapture, but there are significant differences. Because there are differences, they can't be the same event. Now listen carefully. That does not prove a pre-tribulational rapture, but it does disprove the idea that the rapture could come after the tribulation at the end of the seven years. Yes? Good. Let's try another one. Are your eyes spinning yet? All right, one more. You're willing to go one more? All right, let's try one more. All right. We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because of the purpose of the tribulation. Because of the purpose of the tribulation. Why does God pour out wrath upon this planet for seven years in an increasingly ferocious way? Why? Why does he do that? The emphasis of the scriptures upon this period of time, which, as I said earlier, is known as the day of the Lord. The reason or the or the emphasis rather of the scriptures is that it is primarily a Jewish event. It is a Jewish event. It is designed by God to prepare the nation of Israel to receive her Messiah, whom she rejected when he came the first time. She came to, he came to her the first time gentle and mounted on a donkey, right? And she said, I will not have this man reign over me. We don't want him. We want Caesar is our king. But Caesar is not her king. Christ is her king. God is not willing to accept her rejection forever. She will receive her king. She just needs to be humbled to the point where she will do this. And that the tribulation is first and foremost God's plan to humble His chosen people in order that He might save them. In order that He might save them. To prepare her to receive her Messiah and to enter into the new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, right? Jeremiah chapter 31. All right. Why do I say this? I say this because of the terminology that is used to speak to this tribulation period or this day of the Lord. So let me, let me see if we can go through this. I've got 12 examples. All right, here we go. Uh, now we'll go to Daniel, page 895, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel 9, by the way, is a huge chapter, not huge in length, but huge in significance. And it speaks, the end of Daniel chapter 9, speaks of this end time. And he says in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, page 895, he says 70 weeks. Now, I don't have time to prove this to you, but it's it's uh, weeks of years. OK, just trust me at this point. He's talking about weeks of years, 70 weeks of years have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. The thing that I want you to walk away with is to see that it is decreed for your people and your holy city. It is for Daniel's people. It is for Israel. Beyond that, back to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. 
Verse 23, 24. Jesus speaks of false messiahs. Matthew chapter 24, verse 23 and 24. Then if anyone, that's page 895. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or Messiah, or there he is, do not believe them. For false Christs or false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So there are coming of false messiahs. Messiah is, an, is a Jewish term. It is a Jewish concept. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. Then the end shall come. Gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom. He's talking about the great thousand year reign of Christ upon earth. Okay? The gospel of the kingdom. That is a Jewish concept. It is something, by the way, that Israel understood very clearly. The reason we know they understood it clearly is when Jesus began preaching in Matthew chapter 20 or Matthew chapter 4, the first words out of his mouth are, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. And nowhere does he ever define what kingdom means. He merely uses the terminology. He expects his reader, his listeners to know. They do know because they have the whole Old Testament that has informed their understanding of what kingdom means. So when he's talking about the gospel of the kingdom, he's talking about this great thousand-year millennial kingdom. Okay? So preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Fourth reason. 2420, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a what? Sabbath. Sabbath. Okay, I'm just going to have to move faster. Sabbath is a Jewish concept. Sabbath days. Matthew 24, verse 15 Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. You can cross reference that back to Daniel nine, verse twenty seven. He's talking about the temple. He's talking about the holy place. Okay? That's a Jewish concern. Temples are Jewish concerns, not church concerns. Matthew 24, verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Judea is the homeland of the Jews. Thank you. Okay, here's one for you. Page 948. Back to your Old Testament. Zechariah. Okay, Zechariah is way back there in the Old Testament. Second to last book. Zechariah chapter 12. Verses 7 through 9. Zechariah 12 verses 7 through 9. It's talking about the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah 7 beginning in or 12 beginning in verse 7. Page 948. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. For in that day, and whenever it says in the scripture in that day, it's talking about the day of the Lord. That is an expression. That day is the day of the Lord. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem. And then into verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn. That is that they will receive their Messiah finally. Okay, so it's a reference to what I wanted to see there was the city of Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 7, 
page 1230. Revelation 7. <coughs> Excuse me. Beginning in verse 4. Speaking here about the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will be preaching during the Great Tribulation time, during that seven year time, during the day of the Lord time. Verse 4 And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Judah, and then he, or of tribes of Israel. And then he begins to name off the 12 tribes and the 12,000 from each tribe. So he's talking about 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. That is a Jewish idea. Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. Just turn to the right. Revelation 15, verse 3. This is in the time of the bold judgments, the ending judgments. Verse 3, and it says, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Okay? They're singing the song of Moses. Here's another one for you. Uh, Joel chapter 2. Page 911, back to your Old Testament, to Joel's prophecy. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Okay, here we go. Joel, chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, page 911. Joel 2, in verse 28, and it will come about after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old man will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Matthew chapter 24. I'm not going to turn you back there, but Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, speak of the same great signs in the sky. So the signs in the heavens are, is a Jewish notion idea of signs in the heavens, it is in the Jewish prophecies and it is fulfilled during the time of the day of the Lord. 11, page 895, back to Daniel 9. Turn left to Daniel. If you don't get all of these, that's okay. Just get a few. Just get the overall idea. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, page 895. And he, that is the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. We have a covenant, a covenant that is made in a stopping of sacrifices. Okay, that's actually 11 and then 12. So first is the covenant. That's number 11. Number 12 is the idea. It's sacrifices. It's a sanctuary, right? Verse 27. He will, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. He will set up the desolation in the sanctuary. Again, we're talking about the Jewish temple. So for all of these reasons, all of these Jewish ideas, we believe that 
that the tribulation period is a Jewish oriented period, first and foremost, designed to bring about the salvation of the nation Israel. And that is all we've got for today. We got more. Donald, we got way more. But not this morning. Okay, so it looks like the pace is two a week. Sorry about that. Okay, sorry about that. Next week we'll look at children in the millennium. Children in the millennium, that's a huge one. Okay, all right. You've been very patient. I want to turn you to uh, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, page 1203. Hebrews chapter 10, page 1203. Is this whole study in prophecy, is this just an exercise in... um, Bible knowledge, is that the point? The answer is no. Not at all. Prophecy has been given by God for many reasons. I went over a number of them with you a few weeks ago. But one of those reasons for sure is that it is a purifying hope. To be firmly persuaded in your soul that the return of Christ is imminent. Any moment now, he's going to return for his church. It has a way of sharpening your thinking. It has a way of focusing your life. It has a way of clearing aside the clouds and distractions that can so easily overwhelm us in this materialistic country in which we live. So this is, this is immensely practical as we go through this. Immensely practical. It has always been immensely practical for the people of God. The writer to the Hebrews here, beginning in verse 19, chapter 10, just follow along as I read. He says, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what he's doing here is rehearsing our spiritual blessings He's saying that we can confidently enter into the Holy of Holies because the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from our sin. He's saying that we have a a high priest, a great high priest, who intercedes for us before the throne of grace. We have all these spiritual blessings, therefore. Therefore, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is, that is, let's come before him clean, spiritually clean. We have it available to us. Let us also hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's let us hang tight to what we understand the gospel to be. And let's not negotiate it. Let's not give it up. And in the face of pressure, let's not flinch. Third, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. 
He's saying beyond that, let us meet together. Let us meet together. We need each other. We're a family. We're one body in Christ here. And I need you and you need me and you need each other. Because what we need each other for is we need to stimulate one another. Literally, we need to to exasperate, stir up, provoke and irritate. Okay, those are all uh, synonyms for that word. And you're all good at that. But you've got to do it for the right thing. We're to, we're to provoke, we're to exasperate, we're to stir up, we're to irritate one another so that we might have love and good deeds. That is, we're to speak into each other's life with regard to what are you doing, how are you investing yourself, and what God has given you for His glory. That's the kind of irritation or stimulation we're to provide to one another. Okay? Don't forsake our assembling together. But encourage us other one another. And then look at the end of this verse, 25. And all the more as you do what? As you see the day drawing near. Drawing near. See, the more we study prophecy, the more, more we understand and become conversant with what the Bible has to say about the events of the end times, and the more we see, beloved, I think things are playing out in front of our eyes, the more we can come to understand this and live with that expected hope, then the more we need each other and the more we'll be able to speak to one another and say, hey man, are you walking with Christ or not? Time's short. The gospel, do you believe it? Do you preach it? Do you live it? Where are your priorities? Do you think he's never coming back or what? Let's get with it. Let's get with it. Gentlemen, join me, please. What's this stuff all about? What's, what's this all about? Is this not a reminder of the reality that we are one family of God in Christ Jesus here together? And then when we partake of this, what Paul says is that you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until He comes. Once you get a hold of this concept, by the way, you will not read the Scriptures the same way again. Or, uh, wherever you're reading, you will see there is this constant expectation for the return of Christ to set up His kingdom, to rescue His church, to establish righteousness. And it will be a purifying hope in your life. So let's, let's take together of this. Let's celebrate the reality. We are one in Christ, one body here. I need you. You need me. And we need each other all the more, all the more, as the days draw evil and Christ's return is imminent. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, that it's all about Christ and it's not about us. It is his death that atones for our sin. It is his resurrection that assures ours. That is his kingdom that you are in inexorably moving history towards. That the way we see the world today is not the way it will always be. 
happened when Adam and Eve fell and the earth was plunged, as it were, into ruin and sin. When Satan was given a temporary rulership over it, it's not the way it's always going to be. You are drawing out for yourself a people and have been for ages. And that Christ is going to return. He's going to crush Satan. And evil is going to be no more. Sickness and disease and war and famine are going to disappear. And the deepest longings of our hearts are going to be reality. We're going to see you as you really are. That our struggle with sin and its corrosive effect in our lives and the way it, it takes us down so often and, and corrupts even the best things we try to do will be no more. Faith will be sight. We'll be glorified. We'll be perfected. We'll be able to live in the way we've been designed to live. We'll rejoice unhindered in our great God and Savior. In the meantime, our Father, we've been left with this reminder, this memorial. Bread and the cup representing the body and blood of Christ. Thank You for this constant reminder and thank You for the power and potency of it. Thank You have made us one in the Spirit and we are one body here, and we thank you that we need each other. Thank you, you've made us that way, dependent on each other. Father, we receive it with gratitude this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.